Today we'll be reading from Ruth 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So we went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. <laughs> I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will also require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Melon. And I have also required Ruth the Moabite, Melon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among the family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Though the offspring of the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be of that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Then this is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amimadad. Amimadad, the father of Nishon. Nishon, the father of Salmon. Salmon? Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Abed. Abed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Well done, Caroline. That was a rough one. You, I, you, did, I wasn't, you weren't prepared. I didn't prepare you for that. That's, uh, and you did marvelously. Uh, we are finishing up the book of Ruth today. And so if this is your first time here, I hope that you totally understand everything that was happening in that text, and I don't need to fill in any of the details for you. We are in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. And throughout July, we have been in this story for the last four weeks, and we've been living with these characters. The story may feel a bit convoluted. What's going on in this chapter may feel a bit convoluted, but the characters of this story are pretty famous. You've got Ruth, who is the book's namesake. You've got Naomi, her mother-in-law, and you've got Boaz. These are the three characters. They show up again in Scripture as sort of images and icons of faithfulness. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing their story. 
We've been learning from them, and we have been challenged and encouraged by their faithfulness, their courage, their humility, and their generosity. And in this final chapter, chapter 4 that we just read, we get our resolution to this story of the book of Ruth a bit. And I think because it's a little convoluted, because what's going on here is a little bit complicated, it's worth just narrating through a bit to say what is happening in this final chapter. So if you remember from episode three last week, in chapter three, Boaz and Ruth and Naomi hatch a plan. Ruth and Naomi are widows. They have fled from Bethlehem originally, or Naomi fled from Bethlehem originally to Moab during a famine and in the time of the judges. It's an intensely difficult time to be alive, and it is even more a difficult time to be a woman. And so they flee to Moab, where in Moab, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, and Ruth loses her husband. And so in light of this disaster, in light of this incredibly awful moment in their lives, Naomi and Ruth head back to Bethlehem, where Naomi can be at least surrounded by her family and her community and hopefully find some support, some lifeblood, some connection that will bring her back to a place of stability and connection. Because to be a woman in the ancient world puts you in a precarious position because wealth, access, and inheritance, it all runs through the male line. And so without your male relative around or without your husband and sons around, you find yourself in just a very difficult Situation. So they head home back to Bethlehem, where they realize that there is a man named Boaz who is a redeemer for them, which means that he can assume the role of a male relative in their life, buy back the lost property, and restore them to wealth. We learn that Boaz is a humble and generous figure and is interested in doing this. And so in chapter three, Naomi, Boaz, Ruth, they sort of hatch a plan together. That Boaz is going to buy back. Naomi's lost property. He's going to marry Ruth. He's going to restore them to their rightful place in the community and give them some security. But there's one problem with this plan, which is that Boaz is not first in line to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Redemption is a legal role in the Old Testament. Someone was legally fulfilling that job. And there's someone else who is first in line, who gets first dibs, so to say, to the inheritance, to the wealth, and to the opportunity that's provided in this moment. And so if Boaz wants to redeem Naomi and Ruth, he's going to have to convince this other legal redeemer to give up his first rights. And so that's what we have happening in chapter 4. Boaz goes to find the redeemer. He waits by the city gates, which is kind of like the place that business happens. It's like if a courtroom and a coffee shop were merged into one space, you just hang out there and do official business by the city gates. And when the Redeemer arrives, Boaz calls him and 10 elders together. And then what sort of comes next reads almost like an ancient transcript. Boaz tells the Redeemer about Naomi and her position. And here's what it says. Boaz says, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. This is Naomi's husband. And I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those who are seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know, for I am next in line and I will redeem it. 
And at this, the Redeemer says, great, I'll do it. I'd love to redeem it. That sounds like a great plan. But that's not great news for Boaz because Boaz has been hoping to redeem the property and most importantly, marry Ruth himself. But you'll notice that for some reason, Boaz has not mentioned Ruth in this line of reasoning for some reason. And so after the Redeemer says that he will buy the property, Boaz goes on to add this. He says, on that day that you buy the land, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And at this, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. It's an interesting moment. Scholars debate what Boaz is doing. Like, is this a normal way of having a conversation with people in the ancient world, or is Boaz being clever and sort of leading the witness along this train of thought? We don't know. But the Redeemer says no, because marrying Ruth will threaten his existing estate. Because to marry Ruth would mean that you're bringing in another mouth to feed, you have to care for Naomi, but you also have to provide an heir, which is a hard for us to get our minds around, but in order for this line to continue and for Ruth and Naomi to be provided for, this redeemer would have to provide an heir, which means part of his wealth would be cut in half to go to this new heir, and he would see none of it. It wouldn't care for him. It would care for this other family line. And so he says, no, it's too expensive, and that is exactly what Boaz wanted to have happen. So then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malone, who are her two kids. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malone's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead so that his name will not disappear from among the families or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. This is confirming all of those things. And with this, the legal proceedings are done. The story jumps forward. Boaz and Ruth are married. They have a child. And then that child becomes Naomi's guardian redeemer, fulfilling that place that she had lost. And this is sort of how the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz ends. And it's been kind of a journey. It's been emotional. It's been dark. It's been heavy. And then we get to the end of it, and we sort of get this like nice cleanup to all of the different parts and pieces. There's a sort of redemption arc, a sort of restoration arc throughout this story as we close it up. And it's beautiful. It's weird. And throughout this book, what we've been focusing on most has been the characters that we've just talked about. We've focused a lot on Naomi. We focused a lot on Ruth. We focused a lot on Boaz. And there's so much for us in their stories. We get the kind of faithful said love of God displayed through Naomi. We get courage and bravery and a willingness to disrupt norms and cultural perceptions in Ruth. And we get humility and generosity in Boaz. But there is another character that we have talked about less who plays less of a dominant role throughout the book of Ruth. And that's the character of God. Throughout Ruth, God plays sort of a backstage role. God's there, God's talked about, but God is always sort of working on the margins of the story of Ruth. Ruth reads very differently than other biblical books because in other stories of the Bible, you get like the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, and you're like, oh yeah, that's where God is. Or you get Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls. You're like, oh yeah, I know where God is in this one. But in the book of Ruth, 
God is in the marginal spaces of life and the everyday faithfulness of Ruth and Naomi and in the generosity of Boaz. And in that way, I feel like Ruth is such a beautiful book because it bears witness to our own lived experience. The most of our lives look much more like the book of Ruth than it does like the book of Exodus. We show up, experience difficulty, endure trauma, love well, practice faithfulness. And in all of it, we are experiencing and witnessing and partnering with the movement of God in the smaller details of our life. And so as we kind of conclude this book that in so many ways looks like our own, the question I want to ask today as we wrap up is, what does it teach us about God? the character who is often behind the scenes or on the margins of this story, where Ruth and Naomi are our chief protagonists. What do we learn about God, and what does that mean for our own life since this book is so close to the lived experience of our own realities? So what do we learn about God from the book of Ruth? And I just have a couple of things that I think are worth naming. And here's the first one. In the book of Ruth, we learn that God is a friend to our feelings. I really debated how to title this lesson. Um, the friend of feelings would make sense or if that would feel compelling. The other one I thought of is that God is for us in the complexity of the human experience and everything that we bring and everything that we wrestle through, God is for us. But here's what I mean. If you've been reading Ruth with us, you know that it is an emotional roller coaster. It's the time of the judges. It's a time of a famine. Naomi and Ruth lose so much. And when Naomi returns back home, she renames herself Mara, which means bitter. She says, I am bitter. I am empty. And her first words about God are not psalms of praise. They're not worship songs. They are accusations and questions. The first like, theological statement that renders through the book of Ruth isn't hopeful or glorious or gospelly. It is heartbreaking. As Naomi wrestles with what has happened to me and who is to blame for these things. And God is okay with that. God is perfectly content with Naomi's lament. Ruth, like so much of the Bible, teaches us that God can receive our anger, our lament, our frustration, our confusion. God is not ashamed, afraid, or disgusted, or offended by your feelings, even when those feelings feel like direct accusations of God. There is nothing that you can throw at God that will make God turn away from you. This is so helpful to me because... I think in our kind of like Western cultural orientation, especially if you grew up religious, this is how I feel, so I don't want to project this onto you, but if you grew up in religious spaces, I think that there's two-ish ways of handling the way that we feel as religious people. And one I think that's really common in Western churches is that we villainize negative feelings. So if you feel afraid, you feel sad, you feel angry, there's this, like, I think in me explicitly, there's this, like, response to that kind of feeling, which is like, oh, I need to villainize that because true faith is always optimistic. True faith is always hopeful. And so I feel like I have to villainize or distance myself or try to get away from negative emotions that I might be feeling. They are 
somehow threats to my faith or villains to be overcome. But that is just not true. God made us to feel deeply and wholly. To be human is to be a feeling being. And our feelings and emotions provide vital information about what is happening in our lives. So to ignore our feelings is to ignore a part of who God made us to be. But I think on the other side of that equation, if we villainize our feelings sometimes, I think on the other side, a trip that we can fall into is to be held hostage by the emotions that we experience. To be completely absorbed and consumed by the things that we feel. So sadness blinds us or anger blinds us. And I think when that happens, again, my own response is to try to get control of my emotions, to try to dominate them or get them under wraps. But I think either of those postures is actually the wrong kind of posture because what we learn in God and what we see in the book of Ruth, and I think especially in the Psalms, is that God does not try to dominate our emotions. God does not tell us to dominate our emotions. God is a friend to our feelings, which I think invites us to also befriend our feelings. And friendship is a very different posture than one of control or coercion. So the book of Ruth, I believe that God's orientation towards the complexity of the human experience is one of friendship. It listens and is attentive. And in listening and being attentive, God is learning that vital information that feelings are providing. And I think when we see that about God, we realize that God is a friend to our feelings. I think it empowers us to do the exact same thing. I don't have to be ashamed of what I'm experiencing in this moment. I don't have to be ashamed about what I'm experiencing. Even if it doesn't feel very theologically correct, I can feel these things. And God is not ashamed, afraid, or distant from me in those feelings. Instead, the invitation is to be a friend, to listen, to pay attention, and to understand what it is that God's wiring within me is trying to tell me. I think it's the first lesson that I'm learning from the book of Ruth, is that God is a friend to us and our emotions. Number two— God is always at work, but often in very ordinary ways. God is always at work, but often in ways that are regular, mundane, kind of boring. In the everyday stuff of human existence, God is active all throughout the book of Ruth, but it is always in these everyday, normal kind of ways. We've already said this, but this story does not read like Exodus. It doesn't read like Pentecost. Instead, it feels regular. And it is. It's a pretty regular story. And in the regularity and normalcy of the book of Ruth, we see God on the move and inviting us to participate. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz are partners or agents or participants in God's activity all throughout the book of Ruth. Naomi and Ruth, they demonstrate God's character to one another in the way they love. A language that's used a lot about Naomi and Ruth is hesed. And we really struggle in English to translate that word well. Sometimes we do faithfulness, we do like loving kindness, we do commitment, big love. Whatever, you know, like we're always trying to find words that get that there. And we use that term primarily to describe God, but throughout the book of Ruth, it primarily describes Naomi and Ruth's relationship to one another. 
in the way they are faithful to one another, in the way they sacrifice for one another, we get pictures and images of God's love for each other. When we see Ruth interacting with Boaz, we see Ruth teaching Boaz. We see his whole worldview, his whole imagination confronted by the presence and the dignity and the value of this woman who is risking everything to care for her and her mother-in-law. And in the generosity and humility of Boaz, we see someone being an answer to prayers that are asked. The story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi is a story of everyday faithfulness in which we offer prayers and we find ways to answer one another's prayers. Our mission here at Missio, if you've been on our website, is joining God in the renewal of all things. And then if you like read below that statement to like the second statement that's a part of it, is we say this, we are a community of people renewed by God's spirit and empowered to extend God's renewing work into our lives, families, workplaces, and neighborhoods. I did not expect Ruth to feel like such a beautiful picture of this, but that's the thing that has been shining out to me so much throughout this book, is that every moment we're looking at Ruth, we see people who partner with God to extend God's character, God's work, God's restoration to every part of their life. And I think this story invites us and challenges us to do the exact same thing. And it forces us to ask, how might God use us in the regularity, in what feels ordinary, in what feels forgotten? The love of Naomi, the courage of Ruth, the generosity of Boaz, in some ways they seem so small and yet are used by God in such magnificent and beautiful ways. And I hope that as you hear this, that God works in everyday spaces, that you would trust that God is at work right here, right now, through you, to the places that you dwell, to your families, your workplaces, your neighborhoods, that encourage and love and faithfulness and generosity, you can participate in the renewing work of God. That leads to number three. So God is at work. God is a friend. Number three, God pays special attention to the vulnerable. The book of Ruth was written to challenge Israel, and I think by extension us, to pay attention and value the lives of those who are most vulnerable amongst us. Scholars really debate when the book of Ruth is written. Some people think that it was written during the like, dynasty period of Israel, but one of the primary consensuses is, is that it's written during the 5th century BC when a provision was written, a provision was passed in Israel banning marriages between Israelites and Moabites. Which is so fascinating to imagine that this little book of the Bible comes into fruition. This old story gets retold right when somebody in Israel is like, maybe you shouldn't marry Moabites. And they were like, hey, have you remembered this Moabite? Have you remembered the story of Ruth and the gift and value of this woman to this people? God pays attention to the vulnerable. This is such a major theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. In the Exodus story, God rescues Israel and says very specifically, I'm rescuing you because you are small, not because you're mighty, not because you're glorious, but because you are small. If you read the laws, it's all throughout it. You read the prophets, the prophets are constantly lamenting or crying out for justice. The Psalms, God is always saying, I pay attention, I see. And this is especially true in the ministry and teachings of Jesus. But what I love about Ruth is that the book centers Naomi and Ruth. It's their story from their perspective. One commentator, a woman named Caroline Custis James, has this beautiful quote where she says, 
Ruth brings a perspective to the Old Testament law that is often missing. For she speaks as one for whom the law is designed to protect and bless. The hungry, the poor, the widow, the foreigner, and the oppressed. How easy it is from the safe security of power and privilege to read God's law or to draw conclusions from the life of Jesus that won't cost us so much. How would our understanding break open if we listen to those for whom the law and Jesus' teachings are intended to shield, relieve, and prosper? What a beautiful word. Ruth confronts us and even shocks us with the value and the dignity of its characters. And I think the prevalence of this book in the life of Israel and in the biblical canon is this testimony that God sees, God cares, and God has an opinion about what we see and what we care about too. So God pays special attention to the vulnerable in the midst of us. And that leads to the final thing I want to say here about our lessons from the book of Ruth. Number four, God is restoring all things. Ruth ends with restoration and redemption. Ruth is married. Naomi is cared for. That does not mean that the pain of their stories or the wounds are forgotten. Those scars will come with them. But they are healing and experiencing new beginnings And unbeknownst to anyone in this story, Ruth's story is a part of a much bigger story of redemption. Ruth ends with the genealogy, which is always really fun to read. But we learn that in this genealogy, Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, who's this like really important king figure in the life of Israel, which is already wild, that a foreigner, a widow, is included in the genealogy of ancient Israel's number one most famous king. But if you keep following that genealogy into the New Testament, then you find that she is not only the ancestor of David, but she is the matriarch of the clan that Jesus comes from. She doesn't know that. Nobody in that story knows that Ruth's story will end up being a part of God's grand story to redeem all things. God, in often strange and hidden ways, makes our stories a part of his. Ruth's story is the gospel. And that's true, like, in a very literal sense, because her story is a part of Jesus' very mission to restore all things. But it is also a beautiful picture of the gospel. A picture of a God who moves towards to heal, to be with, to befriend and to restore all things. A few weeks ago, Tori and I, with two of our friends, we were camping. And we were camping at one of those sites uh, where everything is like claustrophobically too close together. Do you know what I mean? Like where you're like, here we are, and then right here is that hum of an RV generator behind you as you're trying to like pretend that you're in wilderness. And uh, we camped there. We don't normally do this, but we were like, we've got to get easy access to a reservoir on the 4th of July weekend. So camp there, reservoir is right behind us. We try to like set up our tents in a way that is like facing away from everybody. That was difficult, but we're like looking at a dam. We're like, that's kind of nature. (laughs) Ate dinner, got the fire going, and we were just soothed by the wild hum of generators in the distance. And as we were sitting at the campfire, pretending that we were in nature, I see out of my periphery, this is a true story, I see out of my periphery like an old man approach. 
but he's just outside the ring of light in the fire that is like a little spooky. And you're like, I don't know what's about to happen, but he comes up behind us out of the corner. I turn to see him, and, and then he says, he says, hey, I have way more beer in my cooler than I can drink by myself. Would you join me at the fire? I don't know why, but I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, this is the moment that I've been waiting for. That's not normally my style. Normally I'd be like, no, I'm not thirsty. Um, but I was like, yeah, I got to do it. So we, me and my friends, I don't know why they joined. They're just good sports, or maybe they felt the spirit too. But we all get up, we go to his fire, and that is how we met Roy. And Roy was an amazing human being who had just the wildest possible story. It's the kind of story you would only hear from a dude who approached your fire at night and invited you to his fire. You get the point. It was wild. His story was full of the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. At one moment, he had driven a garbage truck off a cliff, broken every bone in his body. He climbed up a hill until another garbage truck saw him from a distance. I was like, this is, un this is a movie. I don't know what I'm happening right now. An amazing story. We were there for a while, and he found out. Uh, he didn't find out. I told him. I told him I was a pastor. And to that, he just laughed. He thought that was like the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And he'd said, this is a true quote. He was like, I knew I felt the spirit. That's why I went over to your fire. And I was like, yes, it is, Roy. <laughs> and when he found out that I was a pastor, again, this is a true story. He was like, would you tell me a story? He was like, what would you say if I was at your church on Sunday? No bull, tell me a story. And for some reason, I told him the story of Ruth. I don't really understand why, what gripped me, why I thought this would be the best story to tell this like rough garbage truck driving man in the middle of the woods. Like why I wanted to tell him the story about this young woman who had been faithful and courageous, who had lost everything. But this is the story that came to me. And so I told him the story of Ruth. I told him that her story was really similar to his. That her life was punctuated by very low lows and high highs. That like Roy, she had lost everything, but had somehow mustered the courage to keep going. That like him, she had been written off, pushed aside, but that she was faithful, that her love was bold, that she took risks. And I told them, it's like that her life was caught up in the story of God. And that not only did she experience restoration, she became an agent of God's grand redemption as a matriarch of Jesus' family. I told Roy, I was like, I think that's your story. Because it is the story of God that echoes off of every page of the Bible. Our God is a God of restoration who never stops moving towards, who never stops healing, who never stops redeeming, and who is on mission to restore all things. Like Ruth, like Roy, like me, all of our stories are heading towards Jesus, which is not an ending, but always a new beginning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that our stories all find their sense of belonging in you. That your story is a story of hope and restoration and redemption, not toxic optimism, but true hope. 
A story of you coming near, a story of you being with, a story of you honoring and valuing, and a story of you restoring. And so God, today as we wrap up the book of Ruth, would it challenge us to pay attention to stories that are unlike ours? Would it challenge us to see how our stories are like one another's? And more importantly than anything else, would it show us your story? grand, beautiful gospel story that echoes off every page of the Bible and our own lives. Would we receive it? Would we celebrate it? And we know it true of us today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.